0: Good morning, welcome to Redeemer Church. I will exalt you my God and King and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord, he is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. My name is Beth, I'm a volunteer here and I want to welcome all of our newcomers this morning. Thank you so much for choosing to be here. And um, we're starting a brand new teaching series this time, I didn't forget. And so, Pastor Tim, why don't you tell us about it? I'd be more than happy to. Yeah, so today we're starting a new teaching series, and it is titled Taking the Next Step. And so we're going to be looking at, for the next four weeks, the book of Malachi, which is another Old Testament prophet. And this book takes place, it's actually the last book of the Old Testament, but it takes place after the Israelites come back from Babylon. And so we've we've just finished a series, an eight-week series, um, where we've looked at Jeremiah 29, and this book happens to take place after the Israelites are back from Babylon. They've, they've rebuilt the temple. They've established worship, so the temple's rebuilt. Um, they're going to church, but things aren't going well. They've, they've lost track of what it means to be worshipers. Things have gotten mediocre. They've kind of lost sight of doing things God's way, as so often happens. Their sacrifices have been... Gone from stellar to mediocre to uh, very bad. And so Malachi is a prophet who is, who's not a priest, and he, he calls out the priests. And so Malachi is really a, a, a book geared towards the priests, but that's okay because Christ teaches us that we are the priesthood of all believers and that we are all called to to be the messengers of God in the world. And so there's something for all of us to learn as we listen into this conversation through these next four weeks. And today we're going to be talking about authentic worship. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be in your house, to be in this place, to worship you. God, we ask that you would use this time, use these moments that we have, as brief as they may seem, to draw us closer to you. And all these things we ask in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So as we begin this new teaching series, I want to encourage you um, throughout these four weeks to explore the book of Malachi. Um, It's the last book uh, before the New Testament. So if you split your Bible open about two-thirds of the way through, um, you might find it. It's only four chapters long. And since it's only four weeks long of a series through the month of November, I'd encourage you to to read chapter a week or read a chapter a day or read the whole book every day if you're really excited about it. But realistically, if you could read a chapter a week, that would be amazing. Um, Because this this short little text um, talks a whole lot about the next steps of your spiritual life. And I know that if you would invest the time, even if it were just a few moments each day to read, that that God will speak into your life um, to give you some of those next steps in your faith journey as well. So let me give you some background into the situation that Malachi is addressing. Um, It follows chronologically, as I said, um, where we were in this last teaching series in Jeremiah. So here it is in short. That's not a joke. I can tell something in brief. Um, The Jews have returned to their homeland after living in modern-day Iraq for nearly 70 years, and the temple has been rebuilt. They're worshiping God. Worship is reestablished, but things are not going well. They're not going good at all, um, and it's not easy. Outwardly, everything seems okay. The church is open. The church is open. Outwardly, everything looks good. Um, But eating away inside is this this state of complacency, this this internal-like cancer that's festering, Inside the church. And as God, God's final spokesman of the end of the Old Testament, um, Malachi shows up on the scene, and he he challenges the people of God, and especially the priests, of what God wants them to do. And what God wants them to do is to give their best, which is always a challenge. And so we're going to listen into this dialogue between God and God's people and, and learn a few things along the way. But the most important thing that we need to remember through this entire thing is that, is that God loves us. And that he says that right at the beginning of Malachi, that God loves us. We can never forget that. Everything that God says throughout the Bible, he, he prefaces everything with, with his love for us. And so sometimes the, the judgment, sometimes the, the, the you need to fix this in your life overshadows the fact that God loves us. But every loving parent Every discipline, every issue that we are corrected for is always overshadow- is always covered and surrounded with God's love, with love for, for us. And so, God's love for us is tender, it's affectionate, it's unconditional. And just as people 2,400 years ago wondered if God really loved them, you know, we too also wonder that sometimes. I don't know. I can't speak for you. I've often wondered, God, if you made this happen to me, allowed this to happen to me caused this to happen to me, whatever, I don't know. Does that, do you really love me then? We question that. And so Malachi, Malachi starts with love when he talks to the people of God, and he talks about God's love for them and their status in life. And actually, it was because they didn't respond to God's love that, he, that their whole world kind of started heading south in the first place because their worship became kind of wimpy their leaders became lightweights, and their relationships kind of crumbled. Their offerings were poor. I'll say that they were they were bad. They were bad offerings, um, and they really stopped serving God altogether. Um, they were going and and we're going to address these areas of concern throughout the month of November in these four weeks. And so, what I would like you to do is when we talk about Malachi and we talk about um, these, this, this book, these four chapters, I, I'd like you to think about the beginning and end of Malachi. as kind of his bookends. And there are two kind of verses that bookend this, this entire book of Malachi. And, and it starts with um, chapter one, verse two, that says, this is, how, this is how he starts it. God says, I have always loved you, says the Lord. I think that's beautiful. That's, that's where Malachi starts. I have always loved you. Something's never change. I've always loved you, said the Lord. That's the first bookend. And the end of the book, in Malachi 4, verse 2, says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen calves led out to pasture, but it's pretty fun to watch being penned up and then going out to pasture. It's kind of like watching deer as spring fever hits as they frolic in the woods. The prophecy of Malachi begins with God's love in the present and ends with God's promise in the future. And everything in between is God's program and plan to get us there, to get us from that beginning part of always loved you to the end, to there. I'm going to let you out into the pasture. And this not like to act like retirement pasture, but like, you know, like to this joyous place, this promise fulfilled. As part of his program for, for our spiritual progress, God longs for us to give him our best. So let's focus today on three ways, three ways that we can do that. We're talking about three ways that we can give God our best. So if you're taking notes on the message notes, the first thing we can do is we can give God our best by embracing an authentic faith. We can give God our best by embracing an authentic faith. And we see that right away in verse 6 of chapter 1, and, and that there are two sides to a father's love. Two sides. One side is that tender love of a father. And the other side is that bitter, tough love. I'm reminded of a song that my dad once sang in a cantata. Um, uh, it was Daddy's Hands. Daddy's Hands. I don't know if you ever heard that song. There's a picture in my head of this rough old set of hands with big old fat fingers that were all beat up and rough. They were were always gentle. There's two sides to that love. God is relational in his giving and he is resplendent in his glory. And as such, we have to honor him. And in verse 6, God says, The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, A son honors his father. And a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. There are two truths that we hold in tension here we feel secure in God's care for us, and at the same time, we have to respect God's authority. So God refers to himself as father of Israel in Exodus 4, and he calls. Israel, as he calls Israel his firstborn son, and in Exodus 20, he tells us to honor your father and mother. It's kind of the Ten Commandments thing, you know, honor your father and your mother. And if you don't know this, to honor someone means to regard them with great respect, which what parent wouldn't want their child to honor them. And while the priests probably celebrated the statement because they wanted their children to honor them, God is saying to his people, including the priests, that no one is respecting him. God's saying, no one's respecting me. My people aren't respecting me. However, God deserves to be honored because he's holy. And I, and I want you to notice the phrase, Lord of heaven's armies, because he's, that comes up quite a bit. And, and we know the word Lord is... is how we say Yahweh, which is important to to remember because this this was a word that wasn't spoken. It was considered too holy even to say out loud. In fact, it was revered so much that it would only be said on one day of the year, which is the Day of Atonement, and it can only be said by the high priest in the Holy of Holies in the center of the Temple of Jerusalem. And if it never needed to be written down, the scribes would take a bath before they wrote it down and then they would throw the pen away after they wrote it down. Like that's how important it was and how revered the name of God was. And while Yahweh is difficult to define, the name refers to the fact that God is who he is. He is the one who causes everything else. He is unchanging. He is the one who inhabits eternity. However, the word or the title Almighty, or the Lord of Heaven's Armies, that's different. That tells us that he's the, he, is the, he has all of the hosts of heaven all ready to do his work. Um, he has myriads of unstoppable angelic armies to do his bidding, um, and, and they never fail in his errands. Seven times in these nine verses that we're looking at today, and 23 times in the whole book of Malachi, God calls himself the Lord of Heaven's Armies. And if verse six was directed at anyone else, the priests would probably say, Amen, brother. You tell him. Sinner. I mean, like that. that, that. If 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 God was saying these words to anyone else, the priests would have been, You get him, God. Go get him. Let the people have it. But, But that's not. Notice, notice who the message is directed toward directed toward. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the Priests, it's you, O oh, priests, who show contempt for my name. Mm. Ouch. It's time for them to listen up. By the way, it, had, it would have been really hard for them to hear this coming from uh, Malachi because he wasn't a priest, and they probably resented him and looked down on him. And they certainly didn't like what he had to say. See, the priests were showing contempt for God which meant they no longer respected him they didn't like their duties and scorned the the sacred because worship had become wearisome and they took their task for granted to make matters worse they had the nerve to lash out at God and and look at the last part of verse 6 they said but but you ask this is God saying but you ask how have we ever shown contempt for your name have you ever asked God why and then were surprised when he answered? You know, I never should ask that. Well, they asked and God answered. In verse 7, you have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, let me count the ways. Unbelievably, the priest's presiding question, how have we defiled the altar? They they kept going, how have we defiled the altar? And God replies, you've corrupted the Lord's table. See, they were just going through the motions of worship. Maybe you've never done that before. Gone through the motions of worship or playing church. But a lot of times... We do that when we allow the extraordinary to become ordinary in our lives. In fact, it's very common. See, if we let our familiarity with God overwhelm us, if we become too familiar with the holiness of God, it can lead to a mediocrity of spirituality in our lives. It just becomes the mundane. Because, oh, it's just Jesus. Oh, it's just church. You're right. It's just the living Son of the Creator of the universe who physically died and was resurrected from the dead. No big deal. It's mundane nothing to see here. If God bores you, then nothing else in this life is going to satisfy you either. Genesis 4 records what happened when two brothers, Cain and Abel, made sacrifices to God. Cain was a farmer and brought the first fruits of his harvest, and Abel was a shepherd who brought the first of his flock as an offering. And for some reason, God accepts Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. And people have suggested all sorts of reasons why Um, he would accept the one and reject the other. And and pretty much everyone agrees it has everything to do with the attitude of one's heart. Um, 1 John 3.12 tells us the reason why Cain's sacrifice was not accepted was because he had a heart full of evil. Whereas Hebrews 11.4 says that the reason why Abel's offering was accepted was because he had a heart full of faith. Now God looks at a person making the sacrifice before looking at the sacrifice. He looked at the one making the offering, and he was looking for authentic worship when he looked at Israel, and not the sacrifice. That, but that sacrifice was a spiritual sham. It was just awful. If we want to give God our best, we must first embrace authentic worship. We have to stop going through the motion. We have to refuse to play church and do whatever it takes to keep our spiritual fires burning. And some of us dishonor God and disrespect him when we try to live on what Charles Swindoll calls a $3, $3 worth of faith. Has anyone ever heard of that, $3 worth of faith? I really like um, this. I'm going to quote what Swindoll writes. He says that some of us would love to buy $3 worth of God. To buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode our soul or disturb our sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. We want excitement, not transformation. We want the warmth of the womb, but not new birth. We want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. We want $3 worth of God, please. Three dollars worth of God. I like that. Second, if you're taking notes, we can give God our best by giving God priority over our possessions. We would sum up Israel's problem by saying, we could could sum it all up, their issue, by saying that they were suffering from SARS. SARS, S-A-R-S, Severe Acute Religious Syndrome. SARS it was highly contagious. Look at verse 8. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor. See how pleased he is, says the Lord of Heaven's Armies. The priests were accepting not just second best from the people, but worst of all, they were accepting these sick animals and diseased goats that they were and they were offering them on in the in the temple before god imagine if you will like there, there was this hill that went up to the temple i'm sure you've seen the pictures it's been in all the movies there's this the hill and they would bring these animals up into the temple and these a parade of like sick and diseased animals like covered in sores and flies and Um, limping up and probably some were even dying on the way and falling over and being kicked off the side of the road. And God says, isn't it wrong? Not only is it wrong for the people to be bringing those, it's certainly wrong that the priests were sacrificing those. And they should have known better. I mean, Leviticus clearly states that the people are supposed to bring the first and the best male Animals that were without blemish of any kind. Because nothing else would be accepted, is what Levitical law says. And here's why God deserves priority over our possessions. The people were more concerned about keeping what they had than with giving God their best. Their hearts weren't in it anymore, they were still coming to church. But it was just a meaningless ritual. I don't know if anything like that's ever happened to you. Has to me. In the past, not right now. They had accepted mediocrity in their lives. And their leaders didn't do anything about it. And God, I love that God has a sense of humor, uses sarcasm. Sarcasm in the Bible. God uses sarcasm and tells them to try to offer those gifts to the governor. Why don't you go and try to take those gifts to the governor and see what he does? Sarcasm in the Bible. God uses sarcasm with the people through Malachi. Go try to pay your city taxes over at City Hall by taking this, you know, rotten pumpkin left over from Halloween. See if you can pay your property taxes with that. Or drop it off in the church parking lot. Leftover decorations, I'm sure they can use it. <laughs> didn't sell at the yard sale, but I'm sure they can use it at the church. The bottom line is, they thought God didn't care about what they did. After all, they were just middle class people who had worked hard, and they had high taxes, bills to pay, and they didn't have a lot of extra cash. And honestly, they're an awful lot like we are. I'm challenged by this passage because the priests could have said, Hey, it's not our fault. We're just bringing their garbage to God. We're just sacrificing what they brought to us to you. Just the middleman. Don't kill the middleman. Don't hate the middleman. But God doesn't buy it. He holds the priests accountable for what the people are bringing. God makes it very clear that he wants what he wants. And so we must therefore respond accordingly. And so there are three standards in Scripture given um, for giving. Three standards in Scripture uh, about giving. And so you'll find these listed, um, or places to fill these out in your notes. One, we're to give our best. And so Israel had been taught to look through their flocks and find that one animal without defect or blemish to sacrifice to give your best and this would have been really hard really hard to do because this was the cream of the crop this was the best the most expensive animal in your flock this would have been the breeding stock the one that you would have taken out to breed to make more money more livestock in your herd but it was what God demanded. And so this is kind of like the story in the New Testament of Mary and, and Bethany from John 12, where she loved Jesus so much, she'd been forgiven by, for so many things, and she wanted to give graciously, to give back so much. And so she went into her house looking for something, the one thing that she could give, and she saw the alabaster jar of perfume that she wanted to give back. And it was worth a year's wages. And she went and she took it to Jesus, and she broke the bottle and dumped it out and the fragrance filled the room. And scripture says, and the, and the fragrance was, a, was appealing to God and it pleased God. Now, you want to talk about giving your best. I don't know how much money you make in a year. I know how much money I make in a year. And I know that the average income of a, of a person in Michigan these days is somewhere in the high to mid 40000 a year. So, I don't know what you have in your household. I don't have very many items in my house that are worth $48,000. But it would be very hard for me to walk into my house and pick up one item worth $48,000, take it down to the church and break it and say, here. But that's the story. And that's the illustration of giving your best from the Gospels. You talk to a rancher about what it means to give up your breeding stock and giving up your best. Top dollar. Number two, we're to give to God first. I love the sense of joy that accompanies giving in 2 Chronicles 31 5. The people of Israel responded immediately and generously by bringing the first of their crops and grain, new wine, olive oil, honey, and the produce of their fields, and they brought a large quantity, a tithe of all they had produced. You see, not, God is God is not supposed to get our leftovers. Even on Thanksgiving, God is not about leftovers. He should receive our best. And, and when the Israelites gave God 10% and the best of what they had, right off the top, it helped them to recognize that everything they had actually... Was a gift from God in the first place. And we'll talk about, talk about that more when we get to Malachi 3. Um, but, but I find it very interesting that according to the IRS, those who make the least amount of money in our country overall often contribute a greater percentage of their income to charitable causes than those who make the most. Why the disparity? One reason that people believe is because that when we don't have as much, we're more likely to recognize that what we ha- do have is a gift. And we want to give out a gratefulness. And when we have more, we think we deserve it. And because we are spending what we do have, or in some cases more than we have, the thought of giving to God first is either absurd or absent from our mindset altogether. And yet... God calls us to give to him first, no matter how difficult it may be, which is why, for one reason, I'm grateful that we have um, uh, electronic giving here at the church because if we didn't take money right out of our checks first, it would be exceptionally hard for our family to give. But, as I said, we'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to that. God always measures the value of an offering by its worth to the person bringing it. The third is that we are to give that which costs us something, Israel had been taught that giving is sacrificial in second Samuel, David comes to the recognition that his own sin, his own sin, has led people israel astray, and god 's judgment has come in the form of the plague of, of the people, and David intercedes in prayer and he wants to offer a sacrifice and this is a really a kind of a cool story in, in Samuel. And so he wants to offer this sacrifice and so he goes to this place and there's a man there and the man says, you know what? You want to, you want to do this sacrifice? I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you out, man. I got, this, I got this wood already cut. I got this oxen over here. He's a really good oxen. He's my best oxen and I was thinking about killing him for no reason whatsoever. How about I just give him to you and you can kill him? And tell you what, I spent all these days cutting all this wood and I don't really need it anyways. I was just trying to kill time so why don't I just give you this wood? Tell you what, I already built an altar. How about I give you the altar? I give you the wood and the oxen. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit back in your church pew, and I'll give you everything you need, and you don't have to do anything in ministry or work. And here you go; it's all done for you. Kind of paraphrase paraphrase that one a little bit. David is offered everything he needs to just sit back and not do anything. The guy offers him the ox or the the oxen, the wood, and the altar, but he wants he wants to do a sacrifice. Paid for ministry. Everything's done for him. This is what David says in return. He says, No. I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that have cost me nothing. He could have had a free ride. No. Likewise, we must give sacrificially not from what's easy or left over. So those are the three. Giving that which costs us something, giving from what comes first, and giving our best. So our third and final point this morning is that we can give God our best by grasping the greatness of God. And this is really the central focus for today that I want to rest on and and end with, is that, we can give God our best by really understanding the greatness of God. Verse 10 should jolt us upright this morning. This is something, if, you, if, you're, if you're falling asleep, wake up. Because this, this is some of the stuff that's really hard to hear. God would much rather, much rather have us shut down the church than come to him with pathetic leftovers. I want you to listen to Malachi's words. How I wish that one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices would not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of Heaven's Armies, And I will not accept your offerings. I'd feel pretty bad if I showed up to church one day and the doors were locked. And it's hard to hear that God doesn't need our sacrifices, but he's He's saying to us today that don't you dare allow me to be represented by some lifeless religious icon. I'd I'd rather you shut down everything than to continue a phony religious ritual. And if you're not prepared to give me the best part of your life, then don't play church because I'm going to close the doors. And this this stinks. This is awful. But no worship is better than half-hearted worship. And Jesus himself said that in Revelation when he was writing in the letters that John wrote, like the Laodicea, where, where he said, oh, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but, I, but you're lukewarm, and so I'm going to spit you out. God doesn't need us to give him anything, and this passage simply gives us the purpose behind our worship and our, and our giving. So I want you to listen for these next few verses and see if you can detect a pattern in relationship to giving and God. Starting in verse 11. But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning until night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name. For my name is great among nations, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock and then sacrifices and a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies and my name is feared among the nations. You see, every time God mentions sacrifice, he follows it with a phrase like, my name is great, or I am a great king, or my name is feared. See, giving is directly, directly linked to the greatness of God. And that's why when we give God our best, we're finally starting to grasp the greatness of God. And conversely, when we offer him little or nothing, we are really saying that God doesn't really matter that much. And we fail to celebrate God's greatness by giving him our best. We, our priorities get all out of whack, and we become bored with God and excited about all that the world has to offer. And that's what happened to the priests in verse 13. Instead of counting, a, counting it a privilege to minister on behalf of God, because that's what it is. It truly is a privilege They said it was a, what a burden. A burden it was. It was more trouble than it was worth in their minds. And they only went through the motions. I imagine God looks at us sometimes and wonders why we get so bored with him. God actually puts this into a question in Micah 6. He says, oh my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. And in Isaiah chapter 1, we hear an extreme exclamation of the Almighty. He says, When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremonies? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. I want to go back. I want you to notice the strong phrasing of the, of the beginning of verse 14 that I already had read. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. God does not... God not only wants the temple to shut down, but the one who offers this awful stuff as a sacrifice, to be bitterly cursed. And no wonder the Lord is angry with the people of Israel at this point. They promised to give their best. They promised. He brought them back from Babylon after, after 70 years of exile, and he wanted them to give their best and to be in relationship with them, but they ended up giving God their worst. And God is saying that his name is going to be great again, whether they acknowledge it or not. The party's going to go on, with or without us. God told Israel that his greatness and his grace will be given to the Gentiles, to us, and that's what's happening right now. And there's a time coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess and we're going to acknowledge that he is Lord. So, so let me close with this one final thing, this one point. I think, I think there are three symptoms, three symptoms evident in the church today that we are not fully engaged in worship. And so I, I invite you to, to think about these in your life and you be the judge on how they fit for you. There's three lines in the bottom of your notes page. I would encourage you to write these down Take them home with you. Think about them. Pray over them this week. So three symptoms. Inadequate preparation. This is all about what happens before service begins. Are you taking time on Saturday night to get yourself ready for Sunday morning? Not just trimming your nose hairs. But are you preparing your heart and mind, giving God your best, and to receive a blessing from Him? Second is half-hearted prayer. Uh, participation, and this speaks to what we do when we finally get to church because we generally know what's going to happen in a service it 's easy to go just go through the motions and there's nothing more boring than trying to worship God when our heart isn't in it you're present but you're not here. Those of us on stage are not here to entertain you, whether it 's the praise team or myself or a guest speaker or anyone else those Those of us who are up here are here to assist you in worship, to help you experience Christ, to help you experience God, pointing you to Jesus. We're not the audience, God is. The third is improper motivation. And this touches on the reason we come to church in the first place. Are we here just to get something for ourselves? Or do we come because we want to meet and experience God? Our answer makes a world of difference. And instead of wondering if we like it or not, the real issue is this. Did, did we experience Jesus? Did we experience God in the moment? Did we meet God today? And to some degree, did I grasp this greatness? Now, I know that Malachi's message from God isn't easy to hear, but the question remains today, did, are we giving God our best, our best in our time, our energy, our spiritual gifts, and our finances, and our talents, and everything else, Or are we giving God what's left over? Are we going to give him our best? And if we are, we must first grasp his greatness and embrace an authentic faith. It all comes down to this. If if we ever get a glimpse of the greatness of God and what Jesus has done for us, we probably won't ever play church again. And we will give God our best for the rest of our lives. Holy God, I just ask that you would be in each of our lives this week, Lord. That you would work in us as we prepare to encounter you in each moment. God, for all of the ways that we have not given our best, we ask that you would work anew in our lives. That we would have an authentic faith, a genuine faith, and a true faith so that we could worship you and keep our motivations and purposes pure. Work in our lives in the way that only you can. It's in your Son, Jesus' holy name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.